Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. We are in the gospel according to Mark. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark's gospel, chapter 11. I feel like I'm the only one talking. (laughs) We'll take verses 1 through 12. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. And if you are Joining us online, and you can stand while we read God's Word. You are encouraged to do so. Remember, we can see you through the cameras. (laughs) No, we can't. That would be creepy. Verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed. And many others, beating some and killing some, therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them, last saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dresses said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will... The owner of the vineyard do. He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief's cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Please be seated. Criminals in the Vineyard. That is the title of this morning's consideration. Jesus, um, at the Temple Mount, there he was confronted by the religious leaders, and they challenged his authority. By what authority do you do these things? And they were talking about not only his teaching, but his turning over tables and, and, and just rebuking them. His entire ministry was a threat to them. And he, of course, put them on defense in this verbal exchange. He asked them questions that they were not ready to answer. Instead of just leaving it there, he intensifies his attack. He used the vineyard metaphor from Isaiah 5 to out their criminal behavior. These are religious leaders, but they're criminals in the vineyard, as we just read the parable. And so this sketch of them is quite remarkable. So again, so we don't lose sight of what's happening. He's teaching at the temple. They interrupt him. He asked them a question before he... uh, He asked them a question before he answered their question. They could not answer it. And then he says, let me tell you a story about you chaps. And he lays it out. And it is, it is just brutal if you're on the receiving end. And they knew it. They knew it so much, they wanted to kill him on the spot. But they could not. They began to play, uh, plan his death for daring to tell the truth about them. We can't look at this story and say, well, you know, that was the Pharisees and Sadducees, and that's how they were then. No, this is how people can be and are many times. They are still people that react this way to the truth. You simply tell them the truth that they know, and they turn on you. Paul Paul had to deal with it. Because I tell you the truth, am I now therefore your enemy? He says this to Christians. Well, at least they said they were Christians. Not only... Were these people going in the opposite direction of God? They were committing criminal acts against God. You know, there are those that just, they're not following God. 
then there are others that are actually attacking God, committing crimes. Both of them can damn your soul, but this one, this one stands out. These crimes against God, and so Jesus depicts them as the criminals that they are in the parable. Trampling the laws of God, trampling lives of people in real life outside of the parable. So, in other words, is the reason why they were so offended, because they understood this was not just a fairy tale. This was not a story that we just read and dismiss and go on about our business, that this was what they were doing. I struggle to understand this kind of behavior. I think any rational mind struggles to understand it, but then we factor in the whole sin, uh, sinful nature, and, and we begin. We have to accept it because it is true. It is fact. What can make otherwise amazing human beings so inexplicably blind and violent? in the face of spiritual truth. I mean, human beings do some amazing things as humans go. No other created being on earth can do what humans can do. And yet, they still can't figure out who their Lord is. God, even Isaiah the prophet says, you know, donkeys can figure out where they belong. What's your problem? Well, it is that invisible attack of a devil whose influences are very visible. The devil is invisible himself, but his work is not. But they refuse to acknowledge. They, they refuse to acknowledge that Satan works. He functions. He does things. To this day, there are people that refuse to... I mean, how do you order... Just an extreme example. How do you order a mob hit while you're sitting in church? And not understand that there is a very real Satan and you are accountable to a holy God. What is wrong with people that think this way? Well, Christ tells us, you know, I don't want you to be too occupied with why they think that way. I want you to give them the message from me to them through you. And so we look at verse 1 now. Then he began to speak to them in parables. Like they reminded him of a story. Their behavior. Oh, that reminds me. The prophet Isaiah covered this. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, a parable is not a riddle. It is meant to be understood, and they got it. And so do we. Sometimes we struggle to get the parables because they're, you know, from, from you know the ancient days of that. The way the lifestyle, the way, you know, how many of you have sown seed recently, for example. But uh, they, are, they are meant to be understood. This parable is not for the crowds that he was teaching and the other people there in the temple. It was particularly for the shepherds, those who were supposed to be leading the flock. And he says, a man planted a vineyard. Well, God is the owner of the vineyard. He is the one establishing the vineyard. Israel is the vineyard in the parable. It says, and set a hedge around it. That would be the commandments and the blessings that come from them. Barriers against intruders. That's what the, the fence of the law, the rabbis would say. It protects us. And then he says, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. This is before power tools. This was a lot of work. This was an investment of, of, of labor and care. He put, he invested himself into Israel. That's part of the story. Listening to the story, they would have understood that. What it takes to, to make a vineyard like this. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So he entrusted what he put all of this labor and care into. He entrusted it to these Men who were capable, they had the aptitude to oversee the vineyard and produce a profit. It was a good deal. It would be a good deal for everyone. The owner of the vineyard would, would receive a percentage. They would receive, a, a, you know, whatever was, was left over, which was the larger share. Jesus said this to Peter, and he says it to all pastors. He said to him, tend my sheep. 
That's what these leaders were supposed to do. In this parable, just remaining strict to the metaphor, they were to tend the vineyard. Well, the vineyard is Israel. And the vine dressers were the shepherds. His choice of the vineyard and the wicked people connected with it, again, taken from Isaiah chapter 5. Well, I'll get to some of that in about 30 seconds or less. But God saying to humanity, I care and I have expectations. I'm willing to work with you, but I have expectations. And it will benefit both of us. What God wanted from Israel was the cultivated grape. But what he got was the sour grape, the less desirable one. And there was no excuse for this, no good excuse for this. So now going to Isaiah 5, from where Jesus is drawing his parable, though he, he makes some adjustments in the, in the parable because Isaiah stays focused on the vineyard, whereas Christ, of course, stays focused on the vine dressers themselves. He makes it very personal. Isaiah 5, verse 2, He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. See, there's the cultivated item that should not bring forth sour grapes. He built a tower in its midst, also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Those are the sour ones, the lesser grade. In verse 4 of Isaiah 5, What more could he have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? You can hear the lamentation of God to Israel way back 700 years ago to the prophet Isaiah to the nation. What more could I have done? to keep you from going to worship Baal, to keep you from going to look for strength from some other uh, source in the universe, witchcraft and other forbidden avenues, what more could I have done? Well, he could send his son to die for sinners, and he does do that. And still God says to some, what more could I have done? This is the kind of thing we are to preach when we're out, when we leave the church and we find ourselves out in the world, we pray that God would send us someone to preach. Say, Have you ever heard about the parable of the vineyard that started in Isaiah? Do you know who Isaiah is? What more could I, he says, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? So he's not saying this to them. But this is what he's building his parable from. They knew this parable in Isaiah. They knew exactly what he was talking about. No explanation was necessary. And that's why Mark is careful to make this remark at the end of it all. They knew he was talking about them. Isaiah continues in the seventh verse of his fifth chapter four. The vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Those who were to receive help from the leaders, from those that oversaw the vineyard, they did not get the help. Consequently, this vineyard was handed over to the Gentiles for destruction. First the Assyrians, then the Babylonians. That same doom is to be repeated on Israel, the Israel that Jesus was now in, at the hands of the Romans. And it was going to come in stages, it was going to be violent, and uh, it was all prophetic. In verse 2, he continues, now at vintage time, remember he's telling the story, <clears throat> his metaphor, at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. Well, this is fair. I mean, this was the agreement, the covenant that he had with them. I'll let you watch over my field. You give me a percentage. You keep the rest. Everybody has a job. Everybody has some income. Tenant farmers. And again, he's modifying the parable by focusing on the role of the vine dressers and uh, not so much the vineyard as Isaiah. Same, they both get to the same place. It's just how they do it. And so what, what does God want? God wants loyalty. He wants to be loved in return. 
But it was not to be. Not by these people. It would be by the church. Peter loved, you know, they all loved the Lord. I'm not trying to say Peter loved him more than the others, but Peter is in the forefront. We see Peter loving. We see him weeping bitterly because he failed the one he loved so much. God wasn't getting that from others. We come to church, we sing songs, we love the Lord. We raise our arms up, we, we, we weep sometimes, we just love the Lord. But there are so many people that, that hate him. And you want to say, do you even understand what you are hating? Or do or you just think that you can just hate indiscriminately? You can treat God the way you would never want to be treated yourself. To which they would respond, they don't believe it. What makes you think your book is right? It's a matter of interpretation. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you really want truth, if you really want God, he's going to know it. And he's going to begin to work in your heart so that when you come across a Christian, you will receive. Um, So that is quite revealing, is it not? He continues here in verse 3. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Well, I guess in the parable, if you try to apply some logic to the parable, you say, well, maybe the, 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 the owner of the vineyard said, well, maybe they were just drunk that day. Something just must have, you know, this is not normal. What right? What right had they to beat anyone? None. That's what made them criminals. These were gangsters. And that's who was overseeing the people of Israel. We've had it in church history. Almost all the popes were gangsters. One was killed in the act of physical adultery. So this isn't something that's bizarre in the sense of history. It's bizarre to heaven, to God it is. From the time of Moses to the time of Elijah, continuous rebellion and idolatry and apostasy occurred. Joshua said, I don't think you guys could do this. We're going to, my house is going to serve the Lord, but I don't think you guys are up to it. You say you are. And he was right, well, largely. In the days of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, who was the last of the prophets to be martyred before the coming of John the baptizer, they were persecuted. It was persistent persecution. These heaven-sent prophets. Matthew 23, verse 35, Jesus speaking, he says to these same people, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Because you weren't listening to God. You are listening to yourselves. You were out for you in God's name as these vine dressers were. In Hebrews, he says, of whom the world was not worthy. What makes them not worthy? Well, their resistance to fact and truth. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, under full-blown anointing, told them the truth about themselves, and they killed him. And this is what he said. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? (laughs) So, like, did they miss one? He said, it's uh, Stephen still speaking, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Now, remember, Stephen is Jewish. He's one of them, ethnically speaking, but he's not one of them, spiritually speaking. Stephen then said, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. He says, of the just one whom you have become murderers and betrayers. This stuff really happens. It's not like you watch some of these goofy movies where, you know, that never happens. If that happened, you know, you watch the explosion and they're just walking away and their hair is flowing. And and it's like, get out. A concussion would kill them. They're too close. This really happened. Wickedness against God's messengers. Again, it's been persistent through the ages. It's now happening to us. What do we do? What do we do? We stand up to them and tell them the truth. That's what. No matter what. Whether they like it or not. Well, you get to, you get to say your little perverted notions about I mean, you attacking. I mean, the, the diabolical things that is, are happening now are unprecedented. Maybe... Maybe before Noah, 
when the world was all huddled together, maybe at Babel, before the tongues were split, but never globally. There the world was centralized in one area. Everybody was there. But the globe was uninhabited. Now the globe is pretty much, there are no more frontiers. And, I mean, you can get a steak dinner in Antarctica. It's just people have gone everywhere and they've taken their sin with them. But the perversity that we're seeing nowadays, Sodom and Gomorrah has gone global and it has gone nuclear. Uh, I'll come back to more of that because it... So what do we do? And it's, we stand up with the gospel. We give them our message because still within those numbers of perverted souls, there are those that can be saved. Our Bibles have blood on its pages. And that's what uh, Jesus was saying. Which of the prophets... I mean, that was Stephen, but the Lord saying, you know, from Abel to Zechariah, blood for preaching the truth. In this parable, he is the son, as we stood and read the word, he is the son that will be killed, and he knows it. That's the big difference. He knows it. Then came John the Baptist. And when it was time for John to be martyred, the Jews really had no direct involvement in that, but they looked the other way when he was arrested and beheaded, and they could have stopped it. They could have at least protested, and they did not. And now they're going to plot the death of the Son of God for daring to practice what he preached. That sounds like us today. Are we not persecuted for daring to practice what we preach? How dare you disagree with me? I can speak my perverted notions, and you can't protest, but you can't speak righteous notions without severe punishment. And such is the history. Such are the facts. Verse 4, again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. These, of course, in the parable are the prophets from generation to generation. So it's not God didn't send, okay, I say he sent, you know, one prophet in the days of Ahab, he sends Elijah. And that's it. No, that's not it. He sends one for every generation. He's an unbroken witness. He always has his remnant. He always has his voice available. And Israel knew it. And so this character here, these characters here, beginning in verse 4 and throughout this parable, are his prophets entrusted with God's word to be God's voice. This is, uh, a microcosm of this is in Moses. God said to Moses, you will be like God and Aaron will be like your prophet. I will speak to you, Moses, and you will tell Aaron and Aaron will speak it. That's how God works. He speaks from, from heaven to the prophet, from the prophet to the people. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. So Yahweh said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Now, if you think that that is some sort of, you know, uh, evolution to deity in humans, and you're out of your mind. That is not at all what's going on. Moses would know nothing. Moses was not divine. Man cannot be divine. We can be Christ-like. We will be perfected and like him in heaven, but we will never be gods. That New Age nonsense is just... So ridiculous, let's move on. I mean, if, if someone says, you know, they are turning into a God, just ask them to hover. I mean, you're, you're, you're divine, you can do all sorts of stuff, hover. They can't. And anyway, is, if, if that's childish, it's even better. <laughs> uh, anyway, this, uh, back to verse 4. To them... Christ was wrong for pointing it out. We know Isaiah says, you know, there are those that call evil good and good evil, and we're surrounded by them. There's this infestation of them now. And uh, today we have a planet that has available to it the printed word of God 
in probably every language. I mean, it, uh, it's just everywhere God's Word is available. And on the Internet, no one has an excuse. Uh, you haven't had an excuse for, for a very long time in many parts of the world. But uh, they don't believe God's Word applies to the wickedness that they are doing somehow. This madness, sin does that. Sin makes a, a human being crazy when they're otherwise not crazy. It makes them resent being told that they're doing the thing that they're, they're actually doing. And as I mentioned, we have Sodom and Gomorrah everywhere. Unrestrained perversity. No help from the government on this issue. No help from corporations. Yes, there's an element of resistance, but it is uh, not succeeding. They are infecting everything. They are targeting our teens. They are targeting our little children. Who does that? With perversity, with sickness, with a demonic energy that we're not used to, but we're not afraid of either. Not afraid of in the sense that we will fight back. We're afraid of it in the sense that we know it's evil, like you're afraid of a bullet. I don't want to be hit by a bullet. Even if you threw it at me, I don't want to be hit by it. Whole governments, corporations out of their minds, their views and their agenda. What's the connection, Pastor, between the parable and this perversity, this exaltation of evil? Not a righteous exaltation, an unrighteous exaltation. Well, the connection is this. We're telling them, just like Jesus was telling the Pharisees, you're the problem in the story. We're telling the world, you're the problem in the story. And God's going to deal with you. And I'll revisit that again. They hate. They hated then and they hate now. Satan hates being resisted. Satan is intolerant of those who are righteous and oppose him. And he creates this blindness to fairness and to reason and decency. And there are many who go in by it. The murderers of Jesus did not die on the day that Jesus died, on the day that they murdered him. They lived to kill again, and Stephen is proof of that. But they eventually died. And then they were shocked, and they were sentenced without appeal. It was eternal. Not life without parole, but eternity without light. No hope. It was too late. There comes a point where it is too late. And we get little warnings about this in this life. Verse 5, And again he sent another, and him they killed. And many others, beating some and killing some. Now you've got to read the story and say, What is wrong with this? <laughs> what is wrong with this? the owner? I would have retaliated at the first crime with unabated force. Using as my platform an eye for an eye. But that's not what the story is about. The story is about the heart of God in the face of evil men. The slowness of God is due to the long-suffering of God. That's why they're getting away with it. Paul got away with uh, overseeing uh, the, the garments of those killing Stephen. God was long-suffering with Paul. And Paul writes a lot about that. He probably preached on it very often. Peter says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Pause there. When Peter says, The Lord is not slack, he has the Jesus Christ he was with for three and a half years. He has him in mind. When he says, The Lord is not slack, is it my Jesus who is God the Son? He's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Who is us? People. Sinners. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So in the story, God is saying, Jesus Christ is saying, there are these criminals in the vineyard. But I'm long-suffering. I want to reach these guys. I don't want to just go and execute them. I'm going to give them a chance, and it's going to cost my people their blood and shame. Long-suffering is an experience of love. That's where it comes from. 
1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love suffers long. Jesus is holding up before them the great mercy and long-suffering of God in the face of merciless, violent people. Because sin in this life, sin in this life makes humans do things like this. And God wants us to know that evil, while it is used as a filter of God, is not who God is. God wants us to understand that He is merciful. And He brings this out early on in Israel's experience in Exodus 34. Now, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God. Now, pause there. That name, that covenant name, it means salvation, bottom line. It's attached to sovereignty and salvation at the same time. And uh, he continues, well, we read that part. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers, upon the children, upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's so much in that. God is saying, you've got the generation part. Everybody gets stumped by that. It's not generational sin. Well, my father sinned, so I'm a sinner. Well, by that logic, Israel never would have gotten into the promised land. Nobody would get forgiven. He's saying sin is nothing to play with. And it will spread from one generation to another generation unless there's a salt of the earth and a light of the world to deal with this. And what he is emphasizing to Moses so that Moses can go tell the people which he did and puts it in print, and the Holy Spirit preserves it to this day, is that God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. And why is God insisting on this? Because God says, life is not this way. Life is vicious. Your heart will be trampled, even torn out from you from time to time. It is a brutal affair because of the curse on mankind. But there's more to this life than what you're suffering. And I want you to understand there's more to me also. And I don't applaud these things, but I'm going to work through them nonetheless. I will not be deterred. I will filter out from creation a people who will be a new creation and be with me in heaven. And those are the facts. And we have enough of Christ and experience to be able to say, as you wish, Lord. As you will. Your will be done. No matter how much it hurts. I don't have to like it. I have to know it. I have to submit to it. Or I become a a rebel. Jeremiah, who was... You know, Jeremiah just suffered so much. They almost killed him a few times. If it wasn't for one Ethiopian, he would have... Ethiopian going to the king said, Listen, we don't get him out of this mire. He's going to die. And they hauled him out. That was just some of his experiences. He writes this. He says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Well, what's to know about you? Well, when we New Testament Christian, we look at Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son. He has revealed him. John gets to that point early on in his gospel, the first chapter. Well, that's what Moses was saying. He who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Well, what is there to know about you? That you are Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. God has that balance. What is not attractive about that? Everything is attractive about that. This is the God we want and love. Jeremiah continues that he knows me, that I am Yahweh, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says Yahweh. Remember, Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That name is a big deal. Because if you mess with that name, it was a capital offense. And yet, God says in Psalm 139, I will honor my word above my name. That's the scripture. And more, because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. 
full of grace and truth. Verse 6, now that we've got this understanding why in the parable the owner of the vineyard is sending more men to die to reach these knuckleheads, it's because God is long-suffering and merciful, but he's not a doormat. Because at the end of the parable, he deals with these guys. Verse 6, Therefore, still having one son, his beloved son, his beloved, he also sent him to, the, to them last, saying, They will respect my son. Now, of course, uh, a parable is a parable. And uh, it would have been, in, in fact, it would have been cruel to, you know, hey, you know these guys are killing everybody you send. Why would you send your son? Well, but it, because the parable goes beyond the human experience because of the God factor. And again, these boys knew it. And so the son in the story, the son in the parable, would have known, Dad, you're sending me away to killing everybody. But he's supposed to have clout. So the son knowingly goes into dangerous territory, just like in reality, Jesus Christ came to earth knowing that they were going to kill him to save sinners. Revelation 5, speaking of Jesus Christ, you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's how many people are going to be saved because of Christ coming to this vineyard, knowing they were going to kill him. Because of all the, the witness of the martyrs testified. They killed us, they're going to kill you. But it's worth it. And so he shall see the transgression of his soul and be satisfied, said Isaiah. He shall see the sufferings. He will endure the suffering and the shame. And he'll be satisfied. Why? Because of his work, out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, there are those in heaven, in glory, in light forever. That's why the focus then shifts. Verse 7, But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. I think this should be a law against silent letters. It's so frustrating. Why is there an H in heir? Anyway. But those vine dresses said amongst themselves, let's kill them. This is deliberate, and that's what Jesus is saying. When people behave this way, it's not because they've been out in the sun too long. It's because that's what's in their heart. Or maybe we'll put it this way, because of what is not in their heart. God is not in their heart. A loving, merciful, righteous God, holiness, is not in them. Deliberately and out of self-interest, which he is saying here, let's kill them so we can take the inheritance, self-interest. Out of that, they committed this egregious crime. It is abysmal how people treat truth when it comes to God. In the parable and in Jerusalem and in history to this day, people pull this off. Supposing that they're going to get away with it. Supposing that they can exchange their view of deity for Christ or God's revelation of deity. Speculation over revelation. Supposing they'll be better off without him. A tactical blunder. A typical blunder. An eternal one. And God is not going to put up with it forever. He's just going to say, you know, that's that. You've made your choice. God really, in this sense, doesn't send anyone to hell. He just uh, lets them go where they want to go, as far away from him as they can get, and that would be hell. Verse 8, So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Again, what an abysmal choice in the parable. If you're listening to this, you say, Who are these people? Throwing rocks and, and murdering and wanting to steal the inheritance and having no fear of the owner because they think that they're going to survive the owner. This casting the son out of his own vineyard. It's in scripture in the book of Leviticus on the day of atonement. According to Leviticus 16, and this was not the only offering, but this was one. The sin offering was to be taken outside the camp. Christ, when he was crucified, was taken outside the city. When you go to Israel, they have two... Um, 
suggested sites for Calvary where the crucifixion, Golgotha, took place. One is the traditional Roman Catholic site, which is in the city, which is not it, and it's not it on multiple levels. And then there is General Gordon's Calvary. Gordon, who was ultimately killed and beheaded by Muslim, uh, if you ever watched the movie Cartoon with uh, Charlton Heston, that's the same General Gordon, that character, um, that said, was a devout Christian, said, I, in Israel, this is where I think Golgotha is. And so if you go to where, Cal- where that Calvary is, there's a bus station there now. The elevations have moved, but there's, a, there's a, uh, a wine vat there, which would have been Joseph of Arimathea, and a tomb that is still empty. And uh, it is quite, um, uh, it, the, the mountain there is the shape of a skull from when they have quarried stone from it. Uh, centuries ago, that's the spot. And anyway, it's outside of the city. John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 20, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And this is near the city. And walking down, once you leave the city gates, it's a short walk to this uh, uh, Gordon's uh, Calvary. So anyway, that um, it's another interesting thing. There's a, there's a tombstone, not... Uh, there's the stone that you would roll against the tomb that the angels were sitting on when they rolled it back. Well, it's missing if you go to this tomb. Uh, but there, the only known place where there is a stone that matches this is in Jordan up on the mountain somewhere where there are no tombs. What happened? Did somebody throw it like a Frisbee? I mean, it's, I don't, I'm not suggesting that's what happened. But I'm not saying it didn't happen either. Because, I mean, if you were doing detective work, you'd come up with this conclusion. That stone belongs in Jerusalem. Not on some hill a hundred miles away, hundreds of miles away. And I don't know how far it is, so don't quote me on that part. But it's, uh, it's you, you can't walk there easily. Anyway, uh, verse 9 Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. The consequence from the parable aimed at the chief priest and the scribes and the elders, those who came to him, who got up in his face. They agreed with the sentence, that part. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers. At this point, Matthew tells us they said he will destroy the vine dressers. They, they ring in. And this uh, twisted moral culture that we are being surrounded by, they don't have a fear of hell. They don't have a fear of the judgment to come. I don't know how to get them to fear hell. I know how to preach it. I know how to warn them. And that's all I'm told to do. The rest is, well, I mean, you keep the witness there, all the little details that are important, but uh, the, it is really the Holy Spirit to convict and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, as Jesus promised in John 16. And so uh, this Antichrist culture, uh, spiritually drugged by hell, shrugs its shoulder at the knowledge of hell, the place they're going to, they don't believe exists. This antichrist, anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-holiness, anti-reason culture, spiritually drunk with hell's brew. Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength, into the cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is the wrath of the Lamb. How are they going to know this if we don't tell them? I think that it's, you know, fine if you're a Christian, your politics you follow, but when it comes time for combat, this is our sword. They don't need to hear our opinions on politics. They need to hear the scripture. 
They need us to tell them about a very real hell in the face of their resistance. As long as they let us speak, speak. I don't have anything to offer an unbeliever to save their soul except the word of God. What am I going to do? Did you watch on the news the other day? How come you people are doing this? Why are you voting for that? I mean, those are important items. But when it comes to face-to-face combat, hand-to-hand, heart-to-heart, it is the Scripture. And there are many ways to deliver it. You don't have to just... You quote it and you explain it. You can make it interesting or you can make it point blank. However the Spirit leads you. And the second part of verse 9, he says... Oh, time is just flying right here. I think this clock is fast. I think it's 20 minutes fast. Let me reset it. When he says, and give the vineyard to others, at this point, they object in Luke's gospel. So they agree with... What will he do with these vine dressers that treated these men this way? He will kill them, they'll judge them. All right. Then the vine dresser is going to strip it from them and give it to others. Then they saw themselves and they protested that. Luke chapter 20. They said, certainly not. They're being dishonest with themselves intellectually. They weren't thinking as honest men. The temple was destroyed along with the leaders in those days. And... The land was given to the Gentiles. And for over 2,000 years, eventually, by the time God finished, it started in 70 A.D. and continued to about 135 A.D., when God finished with them, the Gentiles had Israel for 2,000 years. Today, spiritually, Israel is lost as a nation. And her appointed place as light bearer has been temporarily reassigned to the Gentiles, the church. Israel retains her prophetic position on God's calendar, but we are the ones that are preaching the truth now. Verse 10, that will change. It's a temporary arrangement. It will be a, a mutual assignment in the millennial reign. Gentiles will be preaching and to, because there are going to be a lot of people born in the millennial reign and death won't be taking them out. So they're going to be multiplying like millennials. <laughs> in the millennial reign, that sense. Verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The metaphor for himself, he is the stone. And the builders are the Jewish people, the religious leaders. And they're rejecting him. And the crucifixion is the evidence of that. The resurrected Christ is the chief cornerstone made clear in Acts chapter 4 verses 10 through 11. Nor is there salvation in any other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here, in verse 10, he challenges their lack of scriptural maturity. These guys are supposed to be the custodians of the word. He's saying, you don't get it. You can't make application. You can quote scripture. You can write it down. But you can't apply it. Why? Because you know your, your hands are dirty. He's quoting Psalm 118. And he is also assuming the fulfillment of that messianic verse. He is saying, I am the chief cornerstone. Nobody else. And he leaves them dumbfounded murderers that they are. He does not try to convert them because it's just now too late for that. They can still be converted by the parable. He's not going to cast pearl before swine. He yielded nothing to them. He went after them. He put his ship alongside their ship and traded blows and won. And they're killing him. It just fulfilled the prophecy. We're going to wait till we get to the part when they say, let's not kill him during the Passover. And he dies during the Passover. Well, I'm looking forward to that because the scripture is just superior in its composition of truth. Anyway, when they rejected Christ, they rejected the one who completed God's plan for humanity. Verse 11, this was the Lord's, this was Yahweh's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. They weren't impressed. The righteous are impressed by it, emotionally moved. These men weren't. You come across people that read about themselves in the Gospels and they're not moved by it. Yeah, I don't care. I don't believe it. That was these boys here. Uh, as far as we know, only Nicodemus and Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea really got it in those days. And that means the others had no excuse because God could say, well, if Nicodemus got it, what's your problem? Verse 12. And they sought to lay hands on him but feared the multitude for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. 
<laughs> they wanted to kill him on the spot. They were just, man, this guy, I can't stand this man. Uh, earlier, they were threatened, John writes uh, in John 11, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, man. You want to be in this guy's sandals on Judgment Day? Uh, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. What about your soul? What does it profit you if you gain the nation in your place and lose your soul? Well, almost done. Uh, what Again, what happens to the vineyard? The church assumes it, uh, and Israel forfeits it for a time. I struggled going through this again, having preached on it enough times in life and read it enough times. But how, how do facts, facts enough, not crush the sway of Satan? How, how, how is that? John, in his first letter, he writes, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Okay, why does not the truth of Scripture stop this? How can anyone be so blind and remain blind when the cure is being handed to them? Well, they're stiff-necked, I know. It leaves us with a broken heart. Here's one answer, Proverbs. This will be the last verse and one short comment. Proverbs chapter 1, verses, verses 30. Um, I'm not sure about the verse, but anyway. Proverbs 1. You can read the whole proverb. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. This is wisdom talking in, in Proverbs. It's personified wisdom. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. Okay, we understand that in middle-aged uh, people, men and women. What about our youth? Are they, why are they stiff-necked? Why are they quick to turn on their pastor and their parents and other parishioners who've done nothing but love them and, run to, and, and drink out of the cesspools of the world? Our hearts should break over this. It should not just be an intellectual disconnect. It should not just be, yeah, well, they're going to hell. Well, we know that if they continue that course. I think there's a, I, you know, I don't want to judge anybody. Well, I do kind of like it sometimes. But I think our hearts should break more over sinners. We should be more mindful over lost souls and the value of the church to confront it as a group who are individuals. We are a group right now. We are one body, and we leave here as individuals. We are supposed to assault the enemy's positions. You can't take him from his position if you don't attack. And you can't attack without orders and succeed. And so we have our work cut out for us this week, do we not, and every week, to get with God and say, Lord, here I am. Send me. And remember when he sent the prophet... It was not a pleasant message. Well, let's close this section of our worship of the Lord in Scripture. And we'll have communion in a moment. And then if you will prepare the articles, if you are uncomfortable with communion, uh, then sure, abstain. But we are going to have communion this morning, and I know it's welcomed. Let's, let me pray.